everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Baptiste Brassard about his new book, Why Do We Hurt Ourselves? Understanding Self-Harm in Social Life, published in 2018 by the Indiana University Press. Dr. Brossard is a lecturer at Australian National University's College of Arts and Social Sciences. He received his PhD in sociology at the School for Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences in 2011. His primary areas of research are mental health, sociological theory, qualitative methods, and utopian studies. Dr. Brossard, welcome to the show. Hi. So I wonder if you'd begin the interview by just saying a few words about yourself and how you got interested in this project. Okay, so uh, I got interested uh, to this project as I was studying sociology. Um, so uh, I was studying sociology uh, in France at the time at the school for the study of the advanced school for the study, like it uh, should I say it's in French. Um, so uh, I did my PhD dissertation on this topic, and then the book uh, is derived from this dissertation. Um, so I, I got interested in this topic um, uh, for several reasons. I think that uh, when I was um, studying and working in France, uh, there were um, huge uh, movements uh, among sociologists to study uh, what we call deviant behaviors among youth. Deviant behavior in the sense of uh, behaviors that are not in the norm. Um, so it's a non-judgmental uh, uh, concept. Um, and there were a lot of work about the deviances of the working class youth. Um, like why do some young people, I don't know, burn cars uh, or uh, do any kind of offense, like legal offense. Um, and obviously there were a, a clear relation between uh, the lack of resources and uh, engagement into uh, deviant behaviors. Uh, and so as a sort of challenge, I wanted to address uh, deviance that was uh, not um, specifically related to a uh, social milieu. Um, and uh, this is one of the reasons for which I chose to study self-injury because it's a behavior that is deviant sociologically, so in the sense of it's uh, socially stigmatized, it's not in the norm, um, but it's not specifically related to uh, either working class or middle class or upper class. So this was one of the challenges. And also uh, this behavior, so the fact of harming oneself, has been long studied by psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, um, and uh, was long considered out of the uh, jurisdiction of the sociologists, so to speak. So I wanted to um, to uh, to take another challenge, which is how to study a behavior traditionally studied by psychologists and psychiatrists, and all the more behavior that is practiced alone. Whereas in sociology, we are used to, to study uh, group behaviors, uh, interactions. Um, so it, it, let's say that uh, self-injury was to me very interesting for a lot of different reasons, and I, I gave the, the main ones. 
Yeah, yeah. So first you talk about how self-injury has no place. So tell us about your methods and how you gained access to people who engaged in self-injury. Um, so how was developing rapport with these participants? Did you find that difficult? Um, yeah, so it was quite a, an important question at the beginning of my work. So I said that uh, self-injury has no place because uh, usually in uh, sociology and anthropology, because I've been trained in, in anthropology as well, uh, the, the classical way of doing is to find a place to study. So uh, do the ethnography of a hospital, let's say, or... Uh, study a, a given group that has an existence for regular meetings, um, whereas self-injury is a solitary practice. Okay, people uh, cut themselves, burn, them, burn themselves uh, alone, uh, and they hide that. Uh, so at first sight, it's it's a almost impossible uh, fieldwork for a sociologist. Um, so I. And my goal uh, was to understand the practice uh, of self-injury. So I had to, to, to find people that do it and talk to them. So I employed two uh, methods. Uh, the first one uh, is the most traditional one, let's say. I uh, got into uh, two uh, psychiatric hospitals or at least mental health institutions that were welcoming uh, teenagers, um, provided that uh, in many uh, of these institutions there are many uh, teenagers who self-harm. Um, so th th this was a little bit complicated actually to have the initial access because many psychiatrists are very reluctant to have uh, a sociologist or someone who is not trained in psychology uh, within their world. So uh, I I had to insist a little bit, but finally I found two places that would welcome me. Um, and uh, the second method was going through um, internet forums because I realized that there were some uh, internet forums that were especially uh, dedicated to uh, self-harm. So where internet users would connect um, and exchange about their ways of self-harming, how they feel, how they try to get out of it. Um, and it's, it, 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 I realized that these spaces were very interesting because uh, people would uh, become friends and become sort of uh, communities that would last for a long time uh, and develop their own uh, per perception of self-harm, uh, develop their own definition, uh, and uh, their own way of managing uh, the group dynamics. Um, so um, to, to uh, meet people uh, in these forums, I first contacted their administrators and I uh, tried to do an interview with them. So there were only four forums of that kind uh, when I was working for francophone forums. I was limited to francophone forums. Um, so I did an interview with administrators when it was possible, and then I asked the administrators to uh, introduce me to other members of the forums, uh, and I did interviews with them, blah, blah, and uh, additionally, I posted a, a public message asking for interviews uh, uh, in the forum so that uh, other members could contact me uh, uh, to talk with me. So I've 
self-harm has no place uh, initially because it's a solitary behavior, but uh, there are still uh, places, to quotes, where we can find a lot of people who self-harm and, and, and for this means I could um, do interviews with people who self-harm. Yeah. So what was your experience like doing this research? Um, how did you handle listening to hard topics for an extended period of time? Mm, I think um, so. It, it, it was difficult um, emotionally because um, very concretely meant that I spent uh, my days, my week, my months uh, uh, doing interviews, listening to interviews, transcribing interviews and analyzing interviews where people would talk about a lot of difficult topics uh, from uh, suicide to, uh, uh, I don't know, sex abuse or this kind of, of thing. Um, you know, I, I think I, I just got used to that. Um, and the positive aspect of it is that um, in doing a lot of interviewing, uh, you are kind of developing a, a capacity for empathy and a capacity to make people feel comfortable to talk to you. So uh, I, I try to focus on that. Um, my perspective regarding my, my personal relation to, to, to these emotions uh, changed when I started um, doing uh, fieldwork in psychiatric hospitals when I was... Um, so uh, basically I was working like an intern in the two... Uh, uh, um, institutions where I worked, and um, I discovered that um, uh, employees there, so uh, uh, psychologists, nurses, um, they were kind of used to, to that as well, like to, to hear patients uh, in very difficult situations saying very difficult things, and that they had a kind of a, a collective mechanism to uh, cope with that. And so I suddenly realized that. Uh, um, that it was very helpful to, to share about what you feel and to laugh about that, to uh, to make it collective. Uh, so I would say at the point of my research where I started doing fieldwork in hospitals, it became very uh, easier to me uh, due to this collective aspect. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what are some of the reasons that people engage in self-injury and how do people who engage in self-injury, how do they talk about or frame their engagement with self-injury? Um, so um, I, I have to answer very cautiously about this because um, so obviously self-injury is a complex uh, behavior and there are several levels of explanation. Um, so if I take the level of um, what people say about why they self-harm. Um, let's say that the common point about um, all the people I met, so I met with about uh, uh, almost 70 people, <coughs> um, the common point is that uh, self-harm allows them to manage their emotions. Okay? Typically, um, it helps them um, to calm down when they are feeling uh, anxiety, uh, sadness, uh, angst, or any disruptive behavior. Um, so 
self-harm for most people is like a, a practical tool to manage their everyday life and to um, especially manage the uh, uh, mundane interactions they are uh, engaged with in their everyday life. Uh, this is why at some point of the book I, I, I said, I wrote that uh, self-injury could be considered as a somewhat conservative behavior uh, in the sense that it allows people to maintain the order of the interactions because they manage discreetly uh, their emotions and, they, and they, can, they can keep doing their activities, like they can keep working, they can keep studying, they can keep going to family meals, etc., etc. Uh, then uh, this emotion, this disruptive emotion can be of several sorts. Uh, and I have a, a chapter in my book where I'm trying to go as... Uh, deep as I can uh, in terms of exploring these uh, these emotions. And here we can see that there is several uh, uh, emotional constructions around uh, self-harm. So, um, for instance, uh, it can be associated with a sense of purity. Uh, so some people are cutting themselves and they say that they like to see I mean, they like, into quotes, to see their, uh, their blood flowing out of their wrists um, <clears throat> because it gives them the feeling that they are purifying themselves from something uh, wrong in themselves. Um, so this is a, a, a sort of discourse that we find a lot among uh, uh, victims of sex abuse, for instance. But there are also um, people who think that they need to punish themselves um, so in that case, they, 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 they see the, the injury as, as a sanction, as a punishment. Um, there are people who have um, disturbing uh, bodily um, feelings, uh, like they feel they don't inhabit their body, they feel that their body is uh, confusing or not adapted to them, that it doesn't belong to them, or, I mean, everything is possible. And in that case, the injury allows them to uh, go down to earth and, and feel their body and, and, um, and have a, a kind of feeling of normalcy, so to speak. Um, so th th there is a, lo a lot of, uh, let's say self-injury is about managing an emotion. Um, if we um, uh, listen to, to, to people who self-injure, uh, but then this emotion and this emotional dynamics can take a lot of, of different shapes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so what are the major theories that inform your research? Like, where were you pulling from in terms of theory? So <clears throat> I am in, uh, um, in between, um, because I am both, um, deeply inspired by, um, uh, symbolic interactionism. So, uh, symbolic interactionism, um, which implies uh, paying attention to the meanings people give to, to what they, they experience, um, to pay attention to um, interactions. Uh, I'm really relying on Goffman. So I know that Goffman is, can barely be considered as a symbolic interactionist, but let's say he, he, he said that we should focus on the interaction order, and I take that very seriously. Um, and... Um, to me, uh, symbolic interactionism means that 
we have to pay attention to what people say and do and try to uh, make sense of their complex uh, uh, experiences of the world. Um, but um, I'm not a pure symbolic interactionist uh, since I, I have also another uh, theoretical trend that is very inspiring to me, uh, what could be called uh, uh, post-Marxism uh, with um, especially the works of uh, Pierre Bourdieu um, that I use with quite a, a flexibility uh, in the sense that to me uh, using Bourdieu means that we need to understand social practices uh, in relation to um, um, the social position in which people are. And uh, what was very strong in Bourdieu's work, to my opinion, was that he, uh, he, he really made us understand how anything that we do is related to our position in the social world. Uh, so our way of feeling things, uh, even the, the sport you're doing, uh, is related. It has a social connotation, and it's related to your social trajectory. So it's it's a way of of um, uh, thinking and a way of reflecting on on my work uh, that that is based on on Bourdieu. Uh, and, and so I'm trying to combine these two uh, theoretical uh, inspirations in my work. And basically, um, uh, this combination is that. Uh, in the part one of the book, it's more interactionist, and the part two, it's more Bourdieuian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the first sections in your book is called A Deviant Behavior Without a Deviant Group. What do you mean by this? So it was a discussion of um, the uh, traditional interactionist conception of deviance, uh, especially Baker's uh, conception of deviance that I wanted to uh, extend, in a sense. Uh, Baker said that um, for people to uh, adopt a deviant behavior, they have uh, beforehand to be socialized to a group that uh, that is developing a sort of reversal of norms or in any way make the deviant behavior look uh, normal. Uh, so I I, I guess here I'm referring to Baker's study of um, um, of uh, jazz musicians smoking weed. Uh, you know, Baker showed that basically it's a norm among jazz musicians in the 50s to smoke weed. So uh, people don't do that as a deviant behavior, but more as a uh, sub-norm in this particular group. Um, and it works for most uh, deviant behaviors, but not with self-harm. Um, because first... Uh, uh, people start self-injuring uh, alone, and it's quite of a mysterious process, especially in the generations who started self-harming in the 90s, uh, where it was not as mediatized, uh, as publicized as now. Um, so uh, many people started self-harming without knowing why, just with a sort of feeling that they had to do that. But in any way, there is a group uh, that made them feel that it's, it, it would be a, a normal thing to do. Um, and second, even when they then find a group where it's uh, usual to self-harm, like, uh, um, like the forums I was talking about, or even certain groups of patients uh, in hospitals, um, even when they have a group um, where they can talk about their practice, it's still a deviant behavior because 
it's usual in this group to uh, self-harm, but in no group I have seen uh, people saying that it's normal. They are always uh, self-stigmatizing themselves in saying that uh, basically, okay, we are all doing that, but it's not normal. It would be better to stop. So, um, so I, I wrote that self-harm was a deviant without a deviant group as a sort of addendum to, uh, to Baker's theory of deviance. Right, right. And then what are some of the social factors that contribute to someone engaging in self-injury? You mentioned some of the individual ones, like not feeling like they're in their bodies or having some emotional distress, but how about some of the social factors that contribute to mm-hmm. engaging in self-injury? Okay, so um, I um, so I, I I didn't talk about factors exactly. I, I I'm very um, uh, cautious here because I'm very worried about the interpretation of of my book. So I take a lot of precaution in my book, saying, "Oh, I'm not writing that A provokes B, and that there is no simple causality." But some people are still uh, reading that, so I'm insisting that. Uh, I'm trying to have a complex model of understanding here. Uh, my analysis is that um, for someone to uh, self-harm, there are some uh, conditions to be met. <clears throat> and these conditions, they are often um, related to uh, the family life of um, the uh, self-injurers, um, at least from what they they told me. So uh, I just uh, repeat that I'm uh, working based on interviews with self-injurers. So I I took their their words, I took their discourses and tried to find some, you know, common dynamics in there. Um, And so I realized um, that, for instance, it was very important for uh, self-injurers to be discreet um, that the discrete aspect of this practice uh, was um, maybe not a motivation, but it was one of the reasons for them to uh, to keep self-farming um, because it's uh, it's somewhat practical to 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 to, to have a, a practice that allows you to deal with your emotions uh, with, without uh, this method to be uh, visible. And I, I and I say that it, it's uh, uh, it's kind of in contradiction with what many people say about you know self uh, injury being a call for help because there are scars after self harm and so uh, many uh, people consider it's a, it's a way of looking for visibility but actually when you talk with people uh, most self injurers they try to remain discreet they try they are trying um, to uh, so to hide when they are doing it. And then, to uh, um, in comparison to uh, the other practices that would allow them to manage their emotion, it's something uh, relatively discreet. So, uh, for instance, if, if we don't, if we take this uh, the, the discretion, discretion, um, I noticed that uh, this was an important feature in uh, self-injurious family lives. Most of them, at least. Um, most of them describe their family life as driven by um, the uh, difficulty to communicate and uh, the importance 
not to talk about their emotion, not to, to talk about their negative emotions, uh, to give uh, uh, a face of oneself, uh, particularly, you know, slick. Um, and uh, as I was trying to understand why, you know, why are um, most of my interviewees talking about this will to be discreet, um, I uh, could um, end up with an interpretation that uh, it may be related to um, the configuration of social trajectories within a family. So to say very simply, uh, it means that uh, people uh, in the family are having um, um, a social trajectory, so meaning they, they, they have, you know, certain... Uh, they did certain studies, uh, they have certain occupations, and they are in a position where discrecy matters to them. Um, and the, the most typical case, um, because I, I won't talk about this for hours, the, the most typical case is the case of um, parents who are experiencing a um, upward social mobility and they are expecting that their children are uh, uh, continuing uh, this upward social mobility, and so they are pressuring their children, um, and uh, which produces a sort of atmosphere in the family uh, where uh, it is impossible for the children to to, to talk about uh, uh, any form of failure, any form of negative emotion, uh, and then it makes sense um, in this configuration to look for a discrete behavior to manage one's emotion. Okay, so um, I'm. Uh, here I'm not saying that uh, social mobility or the quest for discrete behavior is a factor of self-injury. Self I say that uh, it's an important feature of this behavior and it can be uh, explained or understood, at least understood, um, uh, in relation to uh, the specific situation of a family in terms of social mobility, in terms of social position. Right, right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, some of your participants, you mentioned you uh, did part of your research through online forums. So what are some main effects of participating in, in these online forums? Like how did, how did participating in those online forums help or shape um, your participant experiences? So I think it's, um, so I have to talk about um, the fact um uh, that most participants were feeling very um, not stigmatized for their um, self-harming behavior because they were discreet, as I said before. So a few people around them in their offline life knew about self-injury, uh, but they were living uh, under the constant fear of being stigmatized. Um, I think that uh, for many self-injurers, uh, offline social life is the constant uh, um, fear of being discovered and being stigmatized uh, for, for this. Um, so when they discover an online space when you can, where you can talk about self-harm and all the related issues like uh, eating disorder, uh, uh, suicidal tendencies, uh, trauma, uh, and so on. Um, many of them uh, felt a, a feeling of relief and considered 
uh, the forums as a refuge against the offline uh, life. Um, and I, I, th I think it's, uh, it's very important to note because it is a sort of very easy explanation to take to say that uh, self-injurers, because they are young people, they would be naturally attracted to uh, online spaces. Uh, but actually, we have to ask first what the offline life offers to them. And, and here, the offline life offers to them the, the, the constant risk of being stigmatized. So uh, they see uh, online spaces as a refuge. Uh, in which there are, for, for those who stay uh, on these spaces, um, they develop um, connections with uh, people on these spaces, and so it becomes a sort of uh, collective um, uh, group life. Um, they are uh, able on these spaces to talk about self-harm, so it means that they, are, they tend to develop um, representations of this practice um, and it's important to note that even if there are uh, lay representations of self-harm they are often very close to the medical slash psychological uh, representations um, because they basically uh, read uh, psychology in general and they most of them are also consulting uh, a professional. So it's not a, uh, there are not spaces where they have fundamentally different representations of the world than uh, uh, psychology, but it's still theirs and, and they can, you know, uh, talk among themselves about what they, what they think. Um, so I think there is a, 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 this collective effect of the fact of belonging to a collective. Um, that is an effect. Uh, also finding friends. Uh, I noticed that due to this situation where they feel excluded in offline life and uh, suddenly they can talk about everything online. So uh, there are a lot of strong friendships uh, and even more that are created on these forums. Um, and uh, I would say uh, it tends to become a sort of network of uh, mutual help. Um, either for making sense about one's feeling and one's uh, behaviors, but also um, for helping one another in case of, uh, in moments of, of uh, difficulty. Um, what, the, 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 one of the main benefits, so to speak, for people who are connected to these forums is that if they feel bad, if they feel that they will self-harm or uh, even worse, they, they will try to, to, to commit suicide. They, they, they are in touch with a lot of people who are often connected uh, to talk with. So it's, it's a sort of informal self uh, mutual help group. Um, yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, but I want to hear more about what you have to say about how do people manage the stigma regarding self-injury? I know it's a relatively discreet behavior, but when people did find out, how did they manage that stigma? So um, they mostly anticipate that stigma uh, through different techniques. I, I, I was quite interested into that because it's um, um, it, it, it's finally a sort of uh, very mysterious aspect uh, of self-injury. So I'm not really into uh, you know statistic, statistical surveys. Uh, because it's very hard to define, etc. But 
uh, it's likely that, especially among youth, it's quite a, uh, it's a minority behavior, but still a strong minority behavior. So uh, we may all, you know, know around us people who self-harm uh, without knowing it. Uh, it's because it's, it's behavior that can be hidden quite uh, easily. So uh, for different techniques such as uh, wearing long sleeves, um, even during uh, summer, uh, trying to avoid uh, some activities that would make scars to be discovered. So avoid going to the swimming pool, uh, avoid going to the doctor. Um, it, it can be also avoiding uh, some gestures that make uh, scars visible. So for people who are cutting their wrist, uh, uh, it's paying attention every day not to uh, raise the hand uh, in, in, in a way that the sleeve is, is going down so that you can see the scars, etc. So th th there are a lot of different techniques and then a lot of different justifications that are sometimes prepared by self-injurers in, in case of their uh, scars are discovered. So, uh, but I, I don't know if these justifications are working because they are very dubious, uh, like uh, my cat, uh, did uh, this uh, did that to me, or I felt on the floor, or uh, so a, a, any way of justifying the the scars uh, in case someone see them and ask the question. Um, and then um, I, I was also interested of what happens when either the scars are discovered or either they are uh, talked about. So it happens that at some point uh, self injurers want to share. Uh, this behavior with their relatives, with their best friends. Um, and then um, the reactions uh, are quite surprising. So there are um, rejection reactions, uh, obviously, uh, which is quite, um, it can be very damageable, uh, especially uh, in the context of, uh, of high school, for instance. Uh, uh, where basically self-injurers can become the freak of the classroom uh, or, or having, you know, various very, very bad uh, type of reputation. Um, within, um, but, but a lot of people are very understand, understandable as well. Um, one of the surprising things in that regard is uh, ignorance. Uh, I realized that uh, in many cases when Self-injurers are talking about their practice to uh, their family and their parents in particular. Um, parents acknowledge uh, that they saw or that they hear, uh, but then nothing happens. Uh, and, and this ignorance is kind of a very uh, uh, striking aspect of my data because many participants reported that uh, so it means that they, that then they don't know exactly what uh, what to do. Um, so there, there there is this whole range of of um, possible behavior, but I would say that uh, ignorance is maybe something that has to be better understood. Uh, I could imagine that some uh, families are um, not saying anything because they don't know what to say. I mean, it's something a bit uh, difficult uh, to manage. Uh, but it, it can also be possible that uh, they feel accused of something because there is this uh, uh, 
representation that if uh, um, the children of someone are going badly, so maybe it's the fault of this someone. Uh, so th this is kind of a mysterious point uh, to me. But uh, I, I, I guess um, um, I, I guess the, the, the main thing to raise here is that most people, and it's completely understandable, they don't know how to react when they see someone with scars or when they are uh, faced with this uh, narrative. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you mentioned a little bit about gender in your book. How did gender play a role in the perceptions of, and also how did it contribute to self-injury? Um, so this is a very difficult question. Uh, most um, studies suggest that self-injury is more um, a behavior that we find in women. Um, and I uh, met uh, with way more women than men uh, during my research. Uh, then this point of view is uh, criticized because uh, this uh, may be explained by the fact that some men could self-injure but don't uh, name it this way. Or, uh, or, or, or that for, for, for different reasons, uh, that uh, self-injury in men can be interpreted more as attempt to uh, a suicide attempt. So um, we can't be sure about this gender repartition. Um, what I I believe uh, is that. Um, so to, to take another of the uh, quote factors uh, that I didn't talk about before, uh, I believe that um, to uh, self-harm, uh, it is uh, necessary that people feel a problem with their body. Um, and it's very striking in my interviews, people are constructing uh, representing their body as the source of their problems. Uh, they have a conflictual relation with their own body. Uh, and one of the main uh, channels for, for this conflictual relation to their body is uh, the conflicts about uh, appearances. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of uh, my participants who were telling me that uh, <clears throat> they were sick of being told how to dress, how to behave. Um, um, because they didn't feel it was themselves. Uh, and it was mostly um, for women who were told to uh, behave more womanly and dress more womanly. Uh, so I guess it's possible that uh, women have more, that in our societies, women have more pressure regarding their appearances. And this is a sort of one of the conditions of possibility of, of, of self-harming. Um, the other thing is that uh, um, one of the one of the ways of uh, acquiring this kind of conflicting relation to one's body is uh, uh, trauma. To take a psychological word, uh, and here I'm thinking mostly about uh, uh, sexual abuses um, that are uh, not. Uh, the only factor or uh, not a simple causality 
but one of the things that I heard I heard a lot in my in my study, uh, I guess that um, the same processes at stake here that uh, for, for many many people uh, sexual abuses are giving them a difficult relation to their body and which is a condition the possibility of self harm, um, and women are statistically more uh, victims of, of sexual abuses. Um, so these are so some elements of, of explanation. There is also, uh, let's say, a more a deeper thing about about this. I had this uh, uh, impression that many of my participants had um, a difficult relation to their uh, to the gender expectations they were facing in their everyday life, and this uh, applies both to the women I met and to the men I met. Uh, they were uh, rejecting or fed up or bored of the uh, expectations that they would behave either womanly or manly um, in their way of, of dressing, in their way of, in their attitude, you know, being a, a docile woman or entrepreneur uh, man, you know, all these, all these very traditional ways of enacting uh, gender. Uh, most of my participants had some rejection of, of, of these traditional uh, models of gender. And um, so I, here again, I, I, I don't have in mind this model of, you know, a factor of causing uh, self-harm, but I think there is something to do with, uh, uh, with self-harm and the relation to the body and etc. All this is, is, is related to my opinion. Um, but I, I would say that um, um, a form of rejection of traditional expectations, traditional gender expectation was very present among my uh, participants. Yeah, sure. That makes sense, too. Um, so what surprised you the most about your research or your findings throughout this project? What surprised me the most is that... Um, um, and it's probably one of the main conclusions of my book is that I was, um, let, let's say the, the, the um, usual way of seeing deviance and deviant behaviors is um, um, to see that as a sort of uh, non-conformist uh, behavior. Okay, if I take uh, the, the famous example in sociology, uh, jazz musicians uh, in Baker's work, they are kind of a side of mainstream society. They are their own norm and they are, uh, they are marginals, right? Uh, same thing for all the studies on, on, on crime and delinquence. Um, so deviant behaviors are setting people aside from society. Um, in the case of self-injury, it was not that. Uh, it was self-injury is more a deviance, uh, as I said at the beginning, that allows people to uh, maintain the interaction order. So it's a sort of conservative type of deviance. And as a consequence, uh, it means that people, most people I met at least, uh, are using that to... Um, to be uh, conform in a sense, or to, at least as a face aid, to 
um, to follow some social norms, to follow some social expectations. Uh, so um, it means that most of the people I, I met uh, were pretty good uh, students and good workers. Um, and uh, that their practice of self-harm was a means uh, to uh, being uh, good citizens in a sense. Okay, even if many of them had some breakdowns and uh, at some point they had to stop uh, working or studying. But overall, um, most of them were brilliant and uh, I guess uh, they'll have a, a very uh, successful life. So uh, it's the, the most striking thing I, I found was that it was a sort of conformist deviance, if, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, that does make sense. I study it, mental health a little bit, and it does seem that a lot of people are surprised to hear that people that engage in self-harm or have other mental health difficulty, they're actually very successful and they live really successful lives. So yeah, that's interesting. Um, but my final question for you is, what are you working on now or next? So... Um, so I, my book on self-harm, it was published uh, in 2018 in English, but it was published first in 2014 uh, uh, in French. Uh, so it's been, it's been a while that I stopped working on self-harm. Uh, since then, I studied uh, Alzheimer's disease for five years. Uh, and so I, I, I made uh, the next book about, about this. And I am... And currently, my main project um, in the area of mental health is about uh, behavioral addictions and, in particular, uh, sex addictions. I'm studying uh, with some uh, Australian and Canadian colleagues how um, sex addiction has become such a uh, popular category uh, all around the world to um, designate some kind of you know, uh, problem with one's sexual life. And... Um, how uh, different groups and different professionals are appropriating this category to uh, to, to make sense of uh, sexuality. Yeah, well, that sounds like a really interesting project. Um, so where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your books? Um, so there is... Uh, basically, they can find... Uh, me on, on the website of my university, they Google Baptiste Brossard. Um, and uh, my books are uh, on the website of uh, Indiana University Press, uh, where I publish them. Yeah, awesome. So great. Again, this has been an interview with Dr. Baptiste Brossard, author of Why Do We Hurt Ourselves? Understanding Self-Harm in Social Life. I want to thank you again for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you very much.